Welcome to episode two of Tab U. My name's Katrina Heinley. I'm head of marketing and I'm here with Nick Russell, sales director of Tab. And hi, I'm Duncan Krieger. I am the CEO of Tab. Welcome. This episode is about bridging loans and let's kick things off with the first question. Number one, what is a bridging loan? It's a good place to start. <laughs> I think so. Um, short and sweet answer is a bridging loan is a loan that is secured on real estate. That is my short and sweet answer. <laughs> <laughs> Which we will go into conversation about. Tune in next week for what is but I'll try a... to simplify it. Yeah, I think uh, we do want to simplify things and I think my answer wouldn't be too dissimilar, but because Nick's already said it, I'm going to come up with something different. A bridging loan is, as Nick said, secured on a property, but I think the closest description um, or something you can relate to is a mortgage, so a loan secured against the property. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... And how does it get the term bridge? How does the bridge loan work? Okay, so a bridge, what makes it a bridge is really two key things. One is that the term of the loan is quite short, um, typically 12 months maximum, although there is a very good firm called Tab that I've heard of that does up to two-year loans. So it's a short-term mortgage as opposed to a 25 or 30-year mortgage. Yeah, I agree. Ultimately, it is to bridge the gap. And that is the gap potentially between conventional funding and the time you need to potentially either complete a purchase or raise some capital against a property that you own. So we are there as a short-term solution um, until you get a sort of regular mortgage or conventional funding. Or sale. Or sale. Question number two is how does a bridging loan work, which you've kind of answered. So Well, we can... Expand. Expand. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the way a bridging loan works is that um, I'll speak from our perspective as a lender. Um, so we lend money and we secure it on the property. The way that we do that is through a team of lawyers. And typically with a bridging loan, you have two sets of lawyers, one acting for the borrower, making sure that they understand all the terms of the loan that they are entering into and from Tab's perspective or from the lender's perspective, we have a lawyer acting for us and that lawyer's job is to make sure that the property doesn't have any other charges secured against that property and also to check that the property has good and marketable title, meaning that if we wanted to sell the property or if the borrower was selling the property, then um, it would be suitable for somebody else to buy. So the role of a lawyer is quite important um, when you're buying a property, when you're selling a property, and also when you're borrowing money against a property. Yeah, and I'll just add to that that conventional finance ultimately need, typically will need an, uh, the property to support the loan through the income that the property delivers or derives. So with bridging, you don't, we look, it's an asset back lend, which ultimately means we're lending against the value of that property. It doesn't necessarily need to have income. The interest that is being charged can be deducted from the loan. So we're not always we're really looking at does the asset support the loan rather than does the income from the asset support the loan. I think that's a big difference. Uh, it allows us to be well a tab and bridging lenders typically to be a lot more flexible with the type of uh, assets and properties that we'll lend against. Um, I think those are the ma major differences between say a lender such as ours and a high street bank or one of the challenger banks is that. If the property fundamentals stack up, then then we can look to lend against that type of property. 
I've heard of LTV in a kind of bridging loan environment and actually elsewhere, but can you expand on what LTV actually means? So LTV ultimately stands for loan to value, which means if you have a property worth a million pounds, we may as a lender go up to 65% loan to value, LTV, which ultimately be 650,000 pounds. Um, those are typically the limits, maybe 65, 70%. Um, that allows us a buffer. And also it means that there's enough uh, money going in, potentially if it's a purchase, from whoever we're lending to, uh, to give us comfort that they, you know, person of means, person of standing, and then we, you know, we're almost equal into a transaction with the borrower that we're lending to. So if I took out a loan with a lo- from you guys with a loan to value of 65%, could I, in theory, take that... 35% as a loan from elsewhere or does that do I need to provide that as a form of money like cash let's say interesting question I not so whether you could take it as a loan I'm not so sure but it has to be equity in some form so whether it's coming direct I think yeah sorry to cut in I think th- this is a good example of where a bridging loan might work so typically with a high street bank, if you're buying a property to live in, which isn't what TAB does, and I'll explain more about that later, but if you're buying a property, then they're lending you their loan to value, um, which may be 70 or 80%, and then you're expected or required to put the balance of the funds in yourself, and there'll be lots of questions around, have you borrowed that money? Where's it come from? Obviously, there's lots of um, focus on quite rightly so, on anti-money laundering and um, KYC, which is know your customer. So, but, and if you were borrowing the money and you were doing something short term, as in you didn't need a 25-year mortgage, those are things that could push you outside of the general criteria of a high street bank, as Nick said. What we tend to do is we invite all of the information that we can possibly get, and then we make a commercial decision based on everything that's provided certainly it wouldn't prohibit you from getting a bridging loan if you were borrowing the money but we what we really want to do is make sure that everything you tell us stacks up so if somebody says that i've saved up all the money myself and then we're reviewing the case and we find that actually they're borrowing it from a friend and there's a a charge then we would need to consider all of that um so i think the answer is yes you could borrow the difference as long as you are transparent about what you're doing and why Cool. Uh, you mentioned KYC, and that kind of brings us qu- nicely on to question number three, which is who can take out a bridging loan? Almost anyone. I mean, m- anyone who's looking to buy a property or owns a property could take out a bridging loan, whether it's your want to need to extract some capital out for another project or, or you're looking for another purchase. Um Anyone who's got an asset that, that can be secure, the charge can be secured against, pretty much qualifies. Um, we, you know, we as a business, but typically, some not everyone has great credit. We can take certain views on those sorts of things, um, subject to all the evidence being uh, provided, and that sort of comes under the uh, KYC part. Know your, knowing, knowing your client, um, you know, bridging loans aren't necessarily as li- limited by as with the high street banks. And I think that also dovetails into speed. So one of the problems with maybe high street lenders or conventional lending is they can take two, three, four months. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. They are fully regulated by the PRA, which, um, which is the Prudential Regulatory Authority, and the FCA, which is the Financial Conduct Authority. So they have a lot more red tape and hoops to jump through. You know, as a privately funded lender, um, we, you know, we, we can make a lot of our own decisions 
Um, you know, we're obviously prudent with those decisions and we're looking at the risks on every single transaction. Uh, but deals can be completed in a week, two weeks, you know, three weeks, whatever needs to be done subject to all information being provided and us getting comfortable with it. Um, and that, you know, for example, an auction purchase would be a really good example of where bridging finance is really critical. When someone makes an auction purchase, you have 28 days to make to complete that purchase. The chance of getting a conventional lender to complete in those times and underwrite and look at the deal is very limited. So that's where we really come into our own, act with speed. Um, we can move quickly, which allows someone to buy the asset, maybe asset manage it, maybe bringing a tenant who's looking to to pay rent, which will then move on to a longer term, cheaper cost of finance with a more conventional lender. Well, that was a good answer. Um, I'm going to give a completely different one. Okay. Um, but I thought that was good. You should perhaps get a job in sales. Mm. I've, thought, I've been thinking about it. Um, I think you'd be brilliant. I <laughs> My question, my answer was slightly different. My answer is that who can borrow, I would say, individuals, limited companies, offshore companies, trusts, charities, um, husband and wife, friends clubbing together, um, all different LLPs, different types of legal structures. When I think about what Nick's been saying about being an asset-backed lender, that is absolutely right. Um, we are extremely focused on the asset and the value of the asset and the, the liquidity, meaning how quickly that property could be sold, either by us in a worst-case scenario or by a borrower um, who's looking to turn something around. But the second part to that is who's actually borrowing. And I think what what one of the misconceptions is is that um, if I'm running the deal, then I'm the borrower. But the way that it works is a, a limited company is its own legal entity, and it's managed by the directors of that business, and it is owned by the shareholders of that business. So again, these are all things that can make a relatively simple property transaction more complicated and push it outside of the criteria of a kind of bog standard lender and it's a good use case for a bridging loan where you've got potentially two companies coming together um, and buying something under a joint venture agreement that would be very tricky to get through the high street um, but extremely simple for us to get our heads around so huge variety of property owners can borrow great and so question on before Number four, sorry, mm -hmm. <laughs> is uh, how much does a bridging loan cost? Who wants to take that one? <laughs> how long's a piece of string? Um, how much does a bridging loan cost? I mean, it really varies. Uh, we always say that bridging used to be a, a dirty word in the industry. You know, many years ago when I first started, the cost of bridging was, you know, almost extortionate. You've cleaned it up, haven't you? Properly cleaned it up, mate. <laughs> uh, they call me the janitor. Um, <laughs> They don't. Uh, they do now. <laughs> Damn it! Cut that bit out. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was it was very expensive. Um, there wasn't as much access to capital as there is today. I think cost of borrowings has come down dramatically. You know, you're looking now. Sub, you know, it's very it's a, it's not a one step answer this because it really varies between asset class, whether it's residential, whether it's commercial. Going back to your LTV question before, what's the loan to value? So it's really based on uh, how we look at the risk of a, of a deal from our perspective. And I think most lenders would look at it going, well, how much risk am I lending in terms of loan to value? Um, who am I lending to? What type of property am I lending against? All those factors 
uh, indicate will sort of give you an indication of pricing. But I think overall in the market, you're looking at anywhere between around nine to twelve percent is probably where the market sits at the moment. Yes, there are cheaper lenders out nine there. Nine to twelve percent. What? Explain. Per annum. Sorry, that is per annum. Um, you could explain in a bit more detail as well as in if it costs that over the full twelve months and you don't um, borrow for the full twelve months. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what the way we work particularly is. A lot of the interest, we deduct interest in full up front. But if you take a year's bridging loan and redeem that loan, so pay us back early, you'll only pay for the months you borrow. So it is extremely flexible. And although that sounds quite costly, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12% compared to maybe 3, 4% for a regulated, regular mortgage, the flexibility that, that, what, that bridging allows means, yes, there is a price hike, but you get so much flexibility in terms of maybe how much you borrow, and how and how quickly you can pay back without penalties. So typically, we would never charge penalise someone for redeeming early. I mean, at the end of the day, we've always said it's easy to lend money. Anyone could stand outside with a board saying, "I lend money, come and borrow money from me." You know, you'd stand a really awful chance of getting that money back if you don't have the right processes and procedures in place. So that's that's why the pricing is where it is. So, um, picking up from what you said before, you said. Um, Bridging loans used to be a dirty word and definitely when I started as well, it was a kind of lender of last resort. And what's happened as um, capital has become more freely available, not just from private investors who now understand the product, but from big institutions, it's driven the cost down quite dramatically. In some cases, below 10% per annum or below 5% to borrow the money all in, including fees and costs over a six month period. Um and what it's meant is that bridging finance has become much more mainstream. Um, so commercial mortgages could be charged at 4 or 5% per annum and have arrangement fees and hefty exit fees in the first couple of years. So I think bridging's come for the purpose that it is, which is kind of 6 to 12 months, has become much more cost-effective. And, um, and I'd say also that's why typically you'll see bridging, although I've said 9 to 12%, you'll see bridging priced at a monthly interest rate because you are probably calculating it month on month for the amount of time you're actually borrowing the loan. So although you, we talk, we're talking now nine to 12, typically when someone go, goes after a rate, they're looking at maybe how much is that gonna cost per month, which could be anywhere from 0.75 a month, which is nine and up to you know 1% a month, which is 12, 12% per year. So yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and do you, the cost of bridging change depending on the type of property? So we've mentioned residential, we kind of said commercial, which actually we're kind of sneaking into question five as well. But so I don't know, maybe we do question five first and then... Well, look, I'll, I'll touch on that, actually. I think, yes, it does. And it, often it will come down to the liquidity of the market for potentially, you know, God forbid, worst case scenario. And you have to look at things like if we had to take possession, you're looking at how many buyers are there for that type of property. So maybe an unusual com commercial asset such as... Let's just take care homes, for example. There's not as many buyers for care homes as there would be for maybe an office building with a long lease to a strong tenant, right, who's got a long lease. Or a residential property in London and the surrounding areas. The likelihood is you'd have a queue of people out the door if you needed to quickly sell that. So you do look at things like that as, you know, how am I pricing it? What's the risk to us? How easily am I going to get, are we going to get out of this loan if, you know, all hell broke loose and we had to take possession, which realistically is never where we want to be we'd like to go into loans with good people that we know that their whole intention is to repay us with the uh intentions they had at the beginning agreed cool so we'll go on to question seal five of approval 
we'll go on to question five what types of properties um so let's just assume the same person wants to buy both a an office for them to occupy for their business and a, a buy to let property um, a residential house let's just say around the corner from that office um and you would be both properties are, are suitable for lending purposes but what would happen is that the loan to value might be looked at slightly differently and pricing may be affected so if somebody wanted to borrow 50% on both properties, um, that would be acceptable. But to borrow maybe 60 or 70% on both properties probably wouldn't. There is normally a bias towards um, residential property for exactly Nick's point, who's sitting to my left-hand side, um, which was that there is a more of a market for people buying residential property. And amazingly, in this current climate where we are at the moment, there seems to be a phenomenal um appetite for property i mean as a business we're seeing huge transaction levels strong prices and um hopefully that will continue but there's a few bumps in the road to come so offices commercial property of all different types of descriptions can i sorry can i just jump in i think there's a variable here as well is the likelihood of residential property dropping dramatically in value to a point where it could affect our loan is almost unheard of to lose 30 percent of value means the whole world's imploded and it's slightly catastrophic uh but on an say an owner occupied office building that duncan's mentioned if that for any reason the occupier who is also the owner goes bust during the loan then i was all of a sudden instead of having a property that's got a lease in place You've got a vacant property which could diminish the value, which could put our loan at risk, which is why we would look at that with a slightly lower loan to value. And that's probably how, you know, you have to look at all the property fundamentals along the way and what could happen in a worst case scenario. So that's probably sometimes what we'd look as a type of a typical type of assessment between asset classes. Yeah, I mean, to give you just a quick um, fill in, I and mean, we've lent on all different types of weird and wonderful properties before. Uh, we're currently lending on a, a vacant commercial property that's got 43 years um, remaining on a lease, a leasehold commercial property, which is relatively unusual. We've lent on care homes, which Nick touched on before. We've lent on petrol stations and shopping centres. Sites um, with planning. We've lent on sites with planning, um, sites with outline planning. Um, we have lent on all different types of residential property from traditional kind of brick built and tiled roof <laughs> to hof houses and modular builds. Um, so again, these are all things that would typically, yes, we lend on residential property for a, a bog standard high street lender, but if it's got non-standard construction, I'm afraid we can't do it. Those are the types of things that we start to consider. And all properties are different you know even from one end of the street to the other you'll find on one side of the street there's a train line on the other side of the street there's a um, housing estate or there might be a lots of commercial property there might be vacant commercial and from a value perspective you could see a long street could go through several different postcodes it might start in Hampstead which is extremely valuable and end up in Kilburn um, it might be on the same road um, and have a similar postcode but could be completely different and unusual property and then you know we touched on um, in episode one which you should go back and watch mm. now um, the difference in leasehold and freehold and again for a kind of residential properties there are other things that can affect um, leasehold prime example being that as the lease comes down meaning there are less years remaining on your lease it's tricky typically to get um, a residential or buy to let mortgage and for us we're just trying to focus in on 
what is the value of this asset as it stands right now and there's normally always a level at which we are happy to lend assuming the borrower knows what they're doing and um, has a good story and is able to evidence everything that they say you know just because the lease has got 20 years or 15 years or 10 years or nine years shouldn't make the difference to us we don't have a kind of um, a hard and fast criteria that we're unable to break very succinct <laughs> um, actually should we just dub dovetail a little bit into we talked about our values but we haven't really touched on valuations which is probably the hallmark of all bridging loans going off piece there yeah <laughs> sorry but go listen, for it go with the flow right yeah uh i think valuation is is very important that not that we live and die by it but we have to have a valuation on every single transaction right there are you know ricks which is the royal institute of chartered surveyors who uh which is the regulatory body for valuers they will always conduct a valuation on our behalf which is paid for always by the borrower um and ultimately we will look to lend based on the valuers comments uh and the valuation report so the valuation that we're getting from the valuers does that take kind of make up part of the LTV then are we going from that's that valuation that's the v yeah um so <laughs> we the what sorry <laughs> we have lost my train of thought again haven't really don't know where we're going no i think it's an important it's, it's an interesting point because we as a firm um and to do our jobs properly we need to rely upon all of the professionals around us so we don't read the legal um, title ourselves and go through all the covenants of what we can, uh, what that property is allowed and not allowed to do. So a covenant for a property might say that you can only have a maximum of three houses on this piece of land. Um, and if we're lending against a property, we want to know, okay, there's 10 houses on this piece of land. At what point in time did that um, become available? So a lawyer would typically take apart the title of the property meaning the actual documents that say who owns the property when they bought it what they paid for it which pieces of land are included in the title and which pieces aren't um, but we rely on a lawyer to go through all of that information in a huge amount of detail and then report on title so they um, send us a report detailing things that we need to be aware of and similarly with the valuer they'll they'll say we valued this entire parcel of land that includes a house and a garage and then we need to make sure that our lawyer says yes this garage is included in your parcel of land so we're relying on all of the professionals around us in order to make an informed decision um, both for our clients benefit um, our clients being borrowers and funders um, because for our borrowers they need to know that what they're buying is actually what they think they're buying and when it comes to selling it that they are able to and they're allowed to so again for a leasehold property sometimes you need the freeholders consent to do certain things and um but then for us to sort of gather all of that information in and make an informed decision cool uh, i actually also just wanted to touch on the leasehold from some feedback from the first podcast okay. and someone asked if my leasehold is running out and i've only got a number of years left on it how do i go about getting that years up again is the, is it possible what are the steps you need to do yeah okay it's a good question um and it's an important question because if you buy a property you're buying it for 25 years although the lease might not be um short when you buy it it, it might be or it will be 25 years shorter at the end um so i mean the way to do it is um as with most property things you you really need a lawyer in your corner you also need a surveyor so surveyors can do things like valuations that we were touching on before but what they can also do is calculate the 
there's a sim there's a, a relatively complex i should say calculation that says if you have x amount of years left um, and you have a ground rent which we talked about as well but you do as a leaseholder you still have to pay your freeholder a rent every year there's a calculation that says if i want to go from 50 years to 100 years you go into um, an online calculator and i'll see if we can dig that up and put that along the screen at the bottom somewhere whilst i'm doing this um don't know if we can do that but it's <laughs> worth a try <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we can do it. So, um, so you can start to work out roughly for yourself what you think it would cost. But then there's a negotiation between the freeholder and the leaseholder. So in this scenario, you're the leaseholder. You want to approach the freeholder, um, which you can do via a, your block management company. Um, and in the first port of call, I would probably talk to a lawyer and say, you helped me buy this property five years ago. I'd like to approach the freeholder and, and think about extending my lease and they will work out the costs and both sides will have a surveyor and they will argue over it. Um, typically, most sides will try to be fair and agree based on this um, calculation that exists. But in some cases, there are arguments about how long you want to extend your lease for and how much it will cost. And But what I will say is that the, the law is changing quite dramatically around this space, certainly for the first time in my career. And what where freehold used to be seen to be a valuable long-term asset that will always produce rent and that that rent will continue to go up what's happened is that there's something like six and a half million leasehold properties in the uk um, so it's a big big issue and obviously all of those leases are running down um, on a daily basis and i think what the the government is trying to do is to make it more like a freehold property than a leasehold property so ground rents have come have gone sky high all the way up to kind of 200 300 400 pounds and that's something that i would be looking at very carefully when i'm buying a leasehold property but now there's a lot of pressure on freeholders to extend leases at a fair price but not to have unfair rents moving forward wasn't this having a direct issue with uh, the mortgageability of certain uh, houses because the ground rents were becoming so high and they were uh, going up on either an annual or sort of every five, every 10 years to a point where in 10, 15, 20 years time, no one would ever be able to sell their actual property. Did that answer your question? <laughs> okay, that, that, I think that wraps up everything today. Um, thanks. They're the top five questions you've been asking this week. So if you've obviously got any more, let us know and we'd be happy to answer them be delighted really enjoyed that well, thank you very much thanks for coming nick very welcome lovely to have you on the show i was a tough cat <laughs> bye <laughs> peace <laughs>